listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you something, people. I'm a guy who went to college in the early 80s to mid-80s, and back then we would go to bars, clubs, parties, and we would rage and we would dance. And there was one song that me and my friends all loved, and it was called Too Shy, and it was by Kaja Gugu. And the reason we loved that song was because you knew when it wasn't, it wasn't slow, it wasn't fast, it was just sexy. And you knew when you asked a girl to dance, you could tell 10 seconds into the song if she dug you or not. And if she dug you, you knew the next song was going to be a slow song, because that's how the DJs rolled it, probably true by Spandau Ballet, and you might end up getting a date out of the night. And the gentleman, though, who sang that song and also has a uh, Christmas video I just watched this morning, came out, is the one, the only, Lamal. How you doing, Lamal? Hi, Steve. Uh, that was such a huge build-up, but you were making me smile when you were describing the song. It wasn't fast, it wasn't slow, and the reaction from girls. Yeah, it's a mid-tempo. You know, the weird thing is, right, back in 1983... They they uh, they sent out to DJs in clubs about a month before the single was released in the UK. Uh, these uh, they were called white labels, right? And DJs like to get these, and uh, but these were red labels for some reason. <laughs> but the, the the funny thing is, the point I'm trying to make is, dan in clubs people danced to the tempo of Too Shy back then, which was 110, beef, 108. I think on BPM beats per minute, but now that now that would be con- almost considered a ballad or something. I know it, it was it was one of those songs that, as I said, you know, you know, because a lot of us, you know, went to college in the eighties, listened to that music, and it's still very it sticks with us. You know, we see it on Facebook, people going, you know, I love that time, and it's so cool that you were a part about that. And I want to talk about that, but I want to talk first about your Christmas song, and before that, how are you dealing with the whole? quarantine pandemic because i know you want to act and you do act and and you sing so you're you're a, it's it's hitting you in two ways how have you been dealing with this whole pandemic yeah well like everybody else you know um all gigs cancelled normally i travel the world a lot every year because too shy and never ending story was such global hits and um nothing this year <laughs> So I, I did, um, I had my mother down. My mother came and stayed with me and my partner for the first 12 weeks. We had a lockdown back in March. And that was fun, being with my 82-year-old mother for <laughs> close quarters. <laughs> we didn't kill each other, thankfully. Um, and then um, it kind of, you know, it kind of cooled off um, and everybody was, you know, we enjoyed the summer a little bit. But of course, like everywhere else in the world, it has um, it has come back, and I, I I'm not a, I'm not embarrassed to say that there've been a couple of times um, during the last eight months where you just you know you get that <coughs> in the morning or something and you think oh crikey is this it um, and it's weird because um, my hairdresser in central London and his wife both got it early on and they were, and they're in the fifties and they were fine they just felt bad for a couple of days lost their sense of taste and smell. Um, one of my neighbors, uh, she was really poorly for a week at home, but she got okay, didn't need to go to hospital. My brother up in Wigan, which is like 200 miles from where I live, um, he had it like a month ago. He's 63. 
uh, he he said he felt rough for a couple of days and then he was fine. So it's weird that I, you know, you, you, you watch the news, the world is falling apart and, and then, you know, and you hear, you know, you hear the numbers, it's very scary. So it's been a really weird year. I think, you know, um, it's wonderful that we got this glimmer of hope now. All the news here is talking about the vaccine, the potential vaccine, which is amazing. Oh, how wonderful. And um, maybe gigs will be back next year. Maybe life will get back to normal. I hope. I miss live music, and you must miss it more because you're on stage. Now, how has it affected your creativity? Because I know a lot of people in the beginning, like I just interviewed Cy Kernan from uh, The Fix, and Cy had said in the beginning he wasn't that, you know, you're scared, but then after a while you have this time and it really stimulates your creative mind. Has it done that to you also? Well, I, I mean, the first thing is, you know, um, I had so much time. And then uh, sitting around in the in the pandemic and seeing all, you know, London like like Broadway is famous for its West End theatre. And I've enjoyed that all my life, you know, all my adult life. And to see everything closed and no tourists, a completely different vibe. And that kind of got me thinking about the Christmas single. And, and I thought, wow, the lyrics in that song just have so much more relevance this year. And, and it was originally written in 2012, 11, 12, and released as a, as a different song, as you know, called London for Christmas. And, and I, what I was trying to do was write a song about London and a song about Christmas, two kind of passions of mine, and combine that. And then I think back in 2011, I was too fixated on London, you know, because, and I, and I don't know if I said this to you when we talked earlier in the year, that, um, you know, there, for me, the, the drive was, there's all these songs about other places in the world, you know, Chicago, New York, of course, San Francisco, Tulsa, 24 hours in Tulsa, Amarillo, <laughs> San Jose, but hardly any about London. So I was kind of really driven by this idea about a song for London then combined it with a song for Christmas. This year, um, I thought the song, the, the lyrics are really relevant. Um, why don't we, you know, we've got time. So I called the, the two co-writers and we said, yeah, let, let's go and work on it again. And it was during that process that um, the, the new lyric idea came to me one wish for Christmas instead of London for Christmas. And I WhatsApp the guys and one of them liked it, one wasn't sure. But that's, it was very organic. That's just kind of how it evolved and had to re-sing parts of the song, of course. And uh, I don't think this would have happened if I hadn't been in COVID. So in one sense, you could say that COVID was very productive for me, thankfully. Now, where is your love of Christmas come? Because I'm a, I'm a big Christmas lover. I remember sitting as a kid. It was tradition. We'd go to my grandfather's house in Philly. We'd come back. I'd read. I would get, I, the little Steve, would get to read uh, Twas the Night Before Christmas. And it was tradition. And it stayed with me through my whole life. Where does your love come from Christmas? Was it from when you were a kid? Or what, where did that love from Christmas come from? Well, um, it is definitely as a child. I had two brothers and a sister. The, the build-up to Christmas was so exciting because putting up the decorations, the tree, the lights, the, the lights were really exciting. 
And then the unwrapping the presents and the and for us having two brothers and a sister it was games, you know. We're only like one year apart. <laughs> my folks were busy, <laughs> so my my next brother up is one year older, and the one uh, the next year is a, is two years older. So we would play snooker, we would play darts, we would play cards, we would play ping pong, table tennis. So um, we were always very excited about what games we would get, and so I've got all those great memories. And my family didn't have much money. You know, mum and dad worked really hard to save and buy for those gifts. So that's that's where it all started. But but you know, when you when you're in a, I think I think there's something. I mean, in the northern hemisphere, Christmas is important because it kind of helps us to get through the winter, doesn't it? Oh yeah, I mean it's true. It's you know you wake up, you look forward to it. Of course, with global warming, things have changed. I mean, I'm, I'm in outside Philadelphia, and it was just 71 on Monday, which is very weird, yeah. Today, wow. it's, it's 49, and my wife's like, I'm cold. I'm like, it's 49, and it's in November. Calm down. But you're right. Now, about the Christmas song, why did you not opt to sing? Like, so many people opt to sing other songs. Like, David Bowie, of course, sang with Bing Crosby. Did you go through your mind at all to sing a cover or did you always have the idea to sing an original that you could sit down and write? I mean, that's a tough one because, you know, how can anybody do another version of you know, let, Let's pick two songs that I love. Okay. From Christmas, have yourself a merry little Christmas. For me, the definitive version is Luther Vandross. I know it was originally Judy Garland in that lovely film. Um, how could you do that again? I just so difficult. It'd be really, really tricky um, to bring something new to it, you know. And and also the other song, Chestnuts, uh, the Christmas song, Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire, beautiful song. Um, another one, you know, is if you go on Spotify or iTunes, you see like a million covers. I don't know. I, I think the challenge for me as a songwriter was to try and come up with a, a new and I knew it was an impossible task. I just thought, it's probably not possible. Uh, it was great. We wrote it in July or something. <laughs> <laughs> it was weird writing about Christmas. But the wonderful thing was there was, no, there was no deadline. There was no pressure. I got together with a pianist from the Savoy Hotel, John Nichol, who, who plays there three times a week. He's been there like 10 years. Lovely guy. And we're just jamming around, you know, and then suddenly... We're going. I've got the I've got the early recordings and uh, the early. I've kept them all. You know, the Christmas tree will be beautiful in Trafalgar Square. And you know, suddenly you you're taking this journey. Yeah. Now you mentioned John, and I know your insight on me. Cash Gugu Too Shy was a massive video, and people. When I talk to younger people, they don't understand how videos changed the world. The first time we saw MTV. What was it like shooting a video now? Because you know, and you look very dapper in it. I gotta say, you got the nice, the nice jacket, the bow tie. It's good stuff. But what was it like shooting a video now, and also shooting a video during a shutdown, or what, or you know? Yeah. So the first, the first thing was uh, the theater that we hired was was closed. The management were under strict instructions, so we all got these um, health and safety forms that we had to complete and sign and return saying 
we're all healthy, etc. We had to wear masks in the theatre, except for when they were shooting. Uh, We were spaced apart, so we were two metres apart. I was nervous, you know. Um, There's there's quite a lot of people around, and you you just don't know, you know. And, of course, um, uh, we joked, you know. John said to me at one point, well, if if you get COVID and die, it'll be good for sales. (laughs) (laughs) You know? And I did laugh, and I thought, oh, please, don't say that. <laughs> um, but it was, yeah, it was it was tricky, you know. But the theatre is, I've always loved the theatre, you know. When I, growing up in Wigan, we never went to the theatre. It didn't really have a theatre, the small time where I grew up. When I first came to London, I, I remember going to see Evita at uh, one of the big theatres, and it was such a magical experience that first time, a powerful show. And um, that's always stayed with me. And, and obviously, I've seen so, so many shows. I, I started in theatre, you know, my, before Kaji Yuga, I was in Joseph and the Amazing Dreamcoat. I was in a show called Godspell. You know, theatre is really in my, in my blood. What made you travel to that road to theatre as a kid? It's like I talk to many actors who say, you know, they saw a production and it just caught them. What made you want to act? Was there a defining moment or was it just something that you said, I think I can be good at this? Uh, There was a defining moment. Um, Well, first of all, it all started with my passion of records. So I was the kid at the back of the classroom, just dreaming, listening to the tiny radio with a mono speaker um, (laughs) when I should have been. You know, you hear authors say that they were, you know, they, they read so many books, it gave them the, the uh, you know, the, the, the desire to, to, to write. Uh, I just listened to all this great music and I just thought, this is what I want to do. And then um, I went I went into a few a pub talent contests, so like a bar talent contest. And it was kind of okay. It was interesting. Um you know, sometimes it did okay, sometimes that was good. It was always cover versions. Uh, then I finally arrived in London, and uh, I was in a pub one night. It was a trio on stage, piano, drums, and um, guitar. And uh, they said, if anybody wants to come up and sing, just come, just come over, you know. There were like four people in this pub. It was a wet Wednesday or something. So I went up, I sang Yesterday by the Beatles. I remember it vividly. And um, I got a standing ovation from the four people in the audience. (laughs) (laughs) And all the way home, I was with a friend and I was saying, oh, my God, I can sing. I I didn't think I could sing. I've always wanted to sing. I've tried. And and so um, he said to me, well, if you want to do it, then just, you know, maybe go and get some singing lessons and, and pursue it. And that's, that's exactly what I did, and that's where it all started. Then I met somebody who introduced me to an agent. Next thing I'm doing an audition, the next thing I'm in theater. What was it like uh, when you joined Cash Google? Because they were a band before that, and I know they had a different name, and you spin. And first of all, and, you, and first of all, before you ask that, when did you change your name to Lamal? Uh, during, uh, during uh, after I joined Cash Google, but before we got signed to a record deal. That is like one of the most brilliant marketing moves. 
I, I, it's just because I, I was doing, as I do my research, I found out your real name. And when you hear it, everyone thinks, oh, he must be from Indonesia or somewhere very exotic. You know, like it sounds like Lamal, you know, and then I see it. We have the same first name, I believe. Um, but uh, how did the, how did you end up in Kajugugu? Um, do you want me to talk about the name or Kajugugu or both? Both. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, well, I'll do Kajugugu first. Um so I, I was in, in in and out of a few bands, and they didn't work out. And uh, I was writing a lot of songs and recording demos, really kind of, really focused on this dream, you know. I was like 17, 18, 19, 20. And then I just thought, I'm going to form my own band. Um, I'm going to get the musicians separately. So I put an ad in Melody Maker, which was the kind of musician's Bible at the time. And... Uh, saying looking for keyboard player bass drums etc uh, and then i got a call from the bass player of kajigugu then called art nouveau uh nick beggs is a bass player and and he said to me he said we know you you've got an ad and you're looking for separate musicians but we are already a band and we just been auditioning singers but we didn't find anyone you know that's suitable would you be interested and I said, yeah, sure. So I went up to, um, I took a train ride from London to uh, a county. It's about 45 minutes away. Uh, Leighton Buzzard is the town in Bedfordshire. And um, and uh, it's about six in the evening. And I, Nick met me at the station and we drove to the birthday card factory where the drummer worked. And the, the, the manager of the factory said that we could rehearse there. Um, in the evenings for free so um, and they'd, they'd set up all the equipment and yeah so and we kind of clicked and uh, decided to give it a go and I left London and, and moved in with Nick and his girlfriend and we just basically wrote songs and recorded demos for a year that's how I met Kajigugu. Um Art Nouveau they were called Art Nouveau at the time and I thought that was going to be the name and then uh, we just decided to change the name and we threw a few ideas around and came up with that crazy thing. But during, during, um, that time, um, I was thinking Chris is a really boring name for a musician. <laughs> Tell that to the singer of Coldplay. <laughs> uh, um, but, um, I thought sting, that's really cool because it's one word and it's not really a name. And then I was, I was looking at the, uh, the, the, the Swedish group ABBA and, and how they got their name, which was Anna, Benny Bjorn, Anna Frieda. Oh, sorry, Agneta, Benny Bjorn, Anna Frieda. And I thought, oh, that's really cool. They got the letters. So then I was looking at Hamill, my, my surname, my real name, my family name, Hamill. Swap the letters around and I went, Lamal. Lamal. Well, that sounds quite exotic. Now, you said that, Steve, at the beginning of this. You said, it sounds exotic. That's exactly what I thought. I thought it sounded a bit exotic. So I, I, I went into rehearsals uh, with the band and I said, guys, I'm not going to be Chris anymore. I'm going to be Lamal. And um, I got a few sniggers, but uh, they agreed to go with it and the rest is they say. Now, it was the 80s. What was it like for you guys trying to get a record deal back then? Because I'm sure I'm sure English England was a buzz with music back then. It was such a great time 
in all music, even in America, but in England especially, what was it like when you guys were trying to get a record deal? Because there must have been a lot of competition. Yeah, um, it's never easy. I think it's even harder now. But um, we were, you know, just like the Beatles and many others, we were turned down by a few of the labels. Everything changed when I met the keyboard player from Duran Duran, Nick Rhodes. Now, he came into the nightclub where I, I worked as a waiter part-time. This was a cool club to work in in Old Bond Street in London, the Embassy Club. And there's a lot of kind of music and media people in there. And one night, and there they would often be like parties for bands. I remember once there was a party for the 70s group Rose Royce, who were having a huge hit with Car Wash at the time. And they, they'd had a VIP area and we'd be taking up champagne or whatever. Uh, anyway, one night, um, I, I saw Banana Rama in there. I saw Gary Newman in there. I saw a Steve Strange from Visage. Uh, one night, uh, I, I served a drink to Nick Rhodes and his manager, and I started telling him about my band, you know. And uh, at the end of the conversation, he said to me, uh, well, send me your demos. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> And uh, I d he gave me an address. I sent the tape. I got a call a week later, and it, I'll never forget the words. And he said, Lamal, I've, I've got the songs. I really like them. I'm going to take them into our record company, EMI Records, and tell them I want to produce you. So here you've got a guy who's only, I think they'd only had two albums, or even one album at that point. It was already thinking outside of Duran to do production. And, uh, yeah, he brought their, their producer on board, Colin Thurston. And, uh, and when, when they were interested, EMI signed us. And, in fact, EMI had already turned us down like six weeks before. But suddenly, when Nick Rhodes was going to produce us and when Colin Thurston was involved, EMI were interested. So it isn't just about the music ever is it really i think that's what it says well it always says it's about networking and that's the it's a, everyone needs to network and that's the god's honest truth a lot of people don't know that but there's a lot of very talented people out there who haven't got up off their asses that never's going to happen because no one's going to come knocking on your door going hey yeah we're looking for the next big thing um <laughs> now was too shy the original single you had planned to put on the album was that the first song you recorded that's a really good question. Um, the first thing is, um, that was the third recording of Too Shy. Uh, that the, the single hit that you know is the third recording. We did a demo at home, then we did um, a demo in a studio, and then it was really fine-tuned when, uh, when, when we did the album. Um, it was not, that song was not on the, on the cassette that I sent to Nick Rose. That's, that's always amazed me, really, looking back. I think White Feathers was on there. This car is fast. Um, can't remember what the other two were off the top of my head. But um, uh, what was the question again, Steve? Was that uh, did you? What was that the first single? Did you know that was your first oh. song? Yeah. No, we we didn't know. We were we were recording um, an album, and there were various. You know, the thing is, in a creative process, suddenly one of the songs can just take this this turn and stand out and that's kind of what happened with too shy so nothing was obvious 
yeah, I mean, we were too close to judge it prob- prob- probably. But, um, you know, you're just recording and you're hoping and you're thinking maybe this. I, th- I think we all had hopes for a song called Uta Beer, which was the second single, um, because a DJ here really liked it. But um, Too Shy started to stand out. It really did. That intro, that bass line. And of course, <laughs> that slightly catchy chorus. <laughs> <laughs> now, the song starts becoming popular. How does the video impact you? Because, as I said, everybody watched videos back then. And in America, we found out of bands that we would have never known about if it wasn't for videos. Well, um, a, a popular TV presenter was making a new show for a new channel here, terrestrial channel, channel four. And um, the first half of this one hour music program was dedicated to someone who was successful. And at the time that, 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 that half of the show was given to Phil Collins. And the other half of the show was gonna be dedicated to a completely new band who was sort of, you know, breaking out as it were. And so, um, they, they brought a film crew in to sit with us while we discussed the uh, storyboard with the director that EMI Records had hired. So the whole thing was incredibly exciting. And the budget for the video back then, when, you know, I mean, nowadays you can record a video on an iPhone almost. It was, I mean, imagine this, this much money back then, £30,000, so probably about $40,000 back in 83 that was a fortune uh and of course we're all excited but not realizing of course that comes out of your royalties <laughs> <laughs> and and you don't really think about that stuff you know you're just creative 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 going forward so it was really exciting and, and as you say video was new it was like um another way to be uh, another another layer of creativity on top of your lyrics and your melodies and your, your production. So it was, it was just very exciting. Now, and, and you do know, you do know, don't you, Steve, that the girl in the video, who was a friend of mine in London at the time, is married to the comedian in America, Dennis Miller. Oh, I did not know that. That's, that's a very good tidbit. Thank you. Thank you, Lamal. Now, listen, listen, I was with them the night that they met. So Ali Espley Miller, as she's called now, uh, Ali and I went to see um, to a place in New York called Catch a Rising Star, which was a comedy club. And as we as we came out of the club, we're standing on the curb and uh, we're saying, well, where should we go now? And it's like midnight. And Dennis Miller just performed and he came right up to us and he said, why don't you guys come to Columbus's with me on Columbus Avenue, some bar or something? And um, we, so we got in the taxi with Dennis Miller and he was absolutely besotted by Ali. They dated, they got married, they have kids, they live in California. I could, I um, could, I could see him going, Hey, cha-cha, get in the limo. You know how Dennis talks. Um, now when the, when the video hits, now, as you said, you, you had a great look, you had that hair, which any of us doesn't don't know how anyone could make their hair look that good and not move. As you see, I'm bald now, and I had the '80s hair. But how did your life change? Because it's not 
it's not like you're in a video. It's not like you're Dave Matthews in a video where you look just like a regular guy. You know, you're sitting there. You got the hair with the blonde and the dark. And then, you know, how did your did you start getting swarmed on the streets? I mean, how did your life start changing when you started getting recognized? Well, it all happened very quickly. Um, in the UK, the biggest music show on terrestrial TV that regularly got 20 million audience on a Thursday night was, and you've probably heard of it, Top of the Pops. So the single came out, went straight in the chart at number 33. We got the call to say we were doing Top of the Pops. I did Top of the Pops, and the next day I left my flat uh, to buy some something boring from the local shop like cheese. And I got stopped on the street. And that's when I realized, oh, that, that TV show, you know, and of course I had all the hair. It wasn't, wasn't difficult to miss me, really. It wasn't overnight. It felt like overnight, even though um, we had been together for two and a half, three years. And I'd been trying to make it in the music business for at least five, you know, written a hundred songs. 99 of which were probably rubbish. I had loads of demos that I'd done. Um, I'd knocked on so many doors. I'd tried different bands. You know, it wasn't overnight to me, but but that tiny section of it did feel overnight, you know. Now, do you remember the first time you heard yourself on the radio? Yeah. Um, well, there, there's, there's two things here. Um, first of all, before we got signed... We, we, we entered a local radio demo competition in Bedfordshire. Is that my phone? It must be. Oh, I'm sorry about that. It's okay. Let me just decline that. Um, sorry about that. I, I, I put it on Do Not Disturb. I don't know how that happened. Um, so, uh, so, uh, I forgot what I was saying. You had entered um, as you entered a demo contest for the radio. Yeah, we entered a, a demo contest and, and we got to the we won it, you know. And the song was White Feathers, and it was a early, early demo. Uh, that was the first time. I mean, we were all huggle, huddled around the radio. It was like ten o'clock at night on this local station. So excited hearing the panel on this radio show discuss the demos and discuss our song. So that was exciting. Um, and then, um, we got, we got a call from EMI when we, we were told when Too Shy was going to be played on the big, uh, national radio station, BBC Radio One. And, uh, yeah, it was very exciting. It's, it's a thrill. It still is really, you know, I, I, I always kind of, I don't know. You just think, oh, that's my song. You know, <laughs> I don't ever want to lose that either. You know, I yeah. don't want to lose that. And it is, and it is a song. As I said, you always know it when you hear it. Now, as you as you start getting popular, how is what is it like going from you know you're not an overnight success, but top of the pops, uh, they they recognize you after that, and then all of a sudden you start getting in bigger shows and then going to headlining. Did you keep your ego in check, or did you go a little off the off the rails, or how did you try to hold stuff together? Well. You know, I I was raised, um, you know, on a on a on a government housing estate. We had no money. I was just kind of grateful for everything and appreciative, 
I was a vegetarian. I really cared about animals and stuff like that. I cared about I cared about the globe, you know, and global warming. I I, I think that I kept my my feet were firmly on the ground. Um, uh, I don't. I, I think that's why I'm still here today, surviving mentally and physically, because I don't think it's ever really gone to my head. Um, I mean, certainly it was exciting and you, you go along with a sort of crest of the wave, as it were, you know, um, and you pinch yourself when you're meeting Princess Diana and Sting and Tina Turner and all the rest, you know. Um, and I, I went to Elton John's 40th birthday party and, and there was George Michael, Ringo Starr, Nick Kershaw, um, the, be the best thing about the, the, the Elton party, I, um, I had a plus one as my guest and I took my mum. <laughs> Everybody was ringing me going, can I be your plus one? I was going, no, I'm taking my mum. Sorry, guys. <laughs> so when I got to this very, you know, expensive posh event at his manager's house, all the paparazzi were outside. Um, I, I went to every major celebrity and said would you have a picture with my mum and of course they all said yes because they've all got mums right so I've, got this, I've got these great pictures of my mum with all the names that i just mentioned <laughs> it was great it was it was a it was a really you know it was a lot of fun moments and you know even though the kajigu i'm sure you're going to come to that it all ended far too prematurely the Kajagooga we made one album and then it was over and I got fired in a phone call and all the rest of it but I'll always look back and really remember the best bits because there's so many good things you know I don't want that to be the overriding negative uh, memory and that's good you do that I know now what was what was the biggest crowd you guys played in front of 40,000 uh, at a music festival in Finland now, what is that like? Because you're the lead man. I mean, my one of my friends is a drummer for a very big country star. And when I go, I'm not a big country fan, but when I go to see, when they did come and tell her, I would watch, I would focus on him because he's my friend. But for you, you're the lead singer. You're you're the, the backbone of the band somewhat. You know, everyone's looking for you. What is that like when you get in front of a crowd that big? Were you, were you a little nervous or were you just like... You're the actor and you just said, I got this shit. I'm ready to go. <laughs> um, I think, you know, personally, I prefer an intimate show. I like to see people's faces. I love to communicate with people. The big shows, they're great. They're, more, they're probably better for the audience than, than, the, than, than the performers because it's so hard to reach people who are so far back, but they seem to be enjoying it, you know, Glastonbury or whatever. But um, I, 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 I would go up close and personal would be my, you know, I think that would, that, 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 that's what's exciting to me. But of course, the big events are, you know, if they've got good production and they're well organized, of course, they're very exciting to be part of. And of course, if you get a sea of hands clapping, I mean, I'm naughty. I always get the audiences singing too shy, <laughs> or the or the oh 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 in Never a New Story. I just can't resist. <laughs> now, you you mentioned earlier you got fired on a phone call. Did you see that coming? Was there any any you know? I know a lot of people say it was 
it was really publicized. But did you see it coming? Did you feel a riff? Because it's like anything. Like if you're in a bad relationship with someone, you know there's signs. It's the eye contact. It's it's the body language. It's the shortness. Did you see any of it coming? Absolutely not. In fact, we we it was the the Finland gig was the day before I got fired. So a place of forty thousand people, and they all knew they'd already decided. Felt like a real conspiracy. Um, the problem was, you know, I think this is the reason they they're great musicians, Kajigugu, and they they were like this kind of very serious um, uh, musicians with this in Art Nouveau, and suddenly we became like these teeny idols. That wasn't in the plan, you know, and uh, obviously they just they just wanted to get back to where they were. They felt that they. It, it was be the 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 dream, the route, their journey was being misdirected by EMI, by maybe by Nick Rhodes. I don't know. Having this huge hit record wasn't enough for them. Um, I, I I think you know it was folly to blame me. They thought that I was you know they thought we get rid of Lamal because all the girls are screaming over Lamal. Well, actually, they were screaming over all of us. Uh, and 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 of course, with time, we all know that. Beatles were a teeny band, Duran were a teeny band, George Michael was in Wham, it was a teeny band. You know, you, you, that's what would have happened. So it's a very big mistake when you've got, you've spent years getting to that point. You know, I'm sure that they've regretted far more than me because as the singer, you know, I've got much more, I've got much more chance to survive. Um, because the singer's always like the focal point of a group, especially to begin with. Now, what was it like when you you were out of the band, you knew because you were the singer, you knew you were going to get a solo deal. People were going to, people wanted you. I mean, you were popular, you were a good front man. And you all know, you know that, but mentally, where were you at? When it's, you? these were your bandmates. Now, you're, even though you're popular and you're successful and you're a brand, you're recognizable, mm-hmm. you're a young guy, what was it like when you had to start going solo then? Well, it was hard because I missed the camaraderie. You know, it's great when there's five of you and you're getting on a plane and you're hanging out at the airport and you're, having, you're hanging out at the bar in the hotel. So I missed all of that. Um, I felt hurt because um, I was so instrumental in the success of the band. I mean, it was me who met Nick Rhodes. It was a... It was a call, a friend of mine that invested £10,000 on new equipment for the band before we got signed, completely changed the sound of our demos um, because suddenly we had all these amazing synthesizers that um, Depeche Mode had or Human League, Jupiter 8, a TR-101, I think it was called, Roland, uh, TR-808 as well, oh, a Moog, all this great stuff and the demos Suddenly we just sounded like all our contemporaries, you know, and that was a friend of mine. So, and of course I'm writing the songs and I'm, I've moved from London to live with you guys. You know, it was, uh, it was, it was a shock and I've completely gone off, off piece with my, my chat now. And I forgot what the question was. (laughs) No, you, you said it. I said, mentally, how did you feel? And you said you were hurt. Um, now you'd have a hit right after that. How does that make you feel? 
you know, because we all we're all little. Was it like ah, take that you mfers? Because we all get that way. I don't care who you are. I mean, unless you're the nicest person in the world, there's a little vindictiveness in all of us. Were you like that when when Neverending Story came out? Were you like, hey, look at me, man? Or were you just like, ah, eh, you know what? Good riddance. I'm not gonna lie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How can I deny that? Of course, absolutely. It's a bit like being jilted by your ex and then they see you walking down the street with somebody new, you know, come on. And there are songs about this topic, you know, and sayings, um, revenge and the the sweet, whatever, anyway, yeah. So it was, uh, it felt good. It really did. It's like... um, yeah. <laughs> now, after your solo career, you know, the, you you got more into acting. And what what is it like when you, you know, I mean, you are the top of the world, Akaja Gugu, but you're still the same person. And, and it must be hard to take that people's taste change. That's a problem. We all do that. Like, you know, if I'm, I'm just like, if you're a kid and you like something and you eat it as an adult, you're like, eh, you know, what was that like for you? Because it went from, you know, getting swarmed on the streets to not, and then you're trying to get into acting. Is that hard? Well, when everything kind of fell apart and I left EMI records, then I got signed by Clive Davis at Arista in New York. I spent a year uh, writing songs and then, we started recording the album and then they dropped me and then I was really fed up. And, um, I I think I was a bit depressed for a while, to be honest. And I just thought that's it. I've had it with the music business. And, um, then I kind of, as I came out of that, I said to myself, well, if you're only going to be happy when you have a hit record, you may never have another hit record. Does that mean you're going to be unhappy the rest of your life? That's what I used to say to myself. And so that's when, when I, about five years later, I eventually started feeling my musical urges again. And uh, I just thought I'd be like the the football uh, footballer who goes on to be a football manager or the actor that goes on to direct. I thought I would be a producer and I put a little recording studio together in Shepherd's Bush in London. And for seven years, I was, uh, in a way, learning my craft, you know, producing and writing songs for up-and-coming artists, working with DJs, doing remixes. We called ourselves Jupiter. It was a really busy period creatively, and it was very satisfying. But we didn't make any money, you know. (laughs) We didn't make any money. We didn't get that break. And then in 1997, or around that time, the first 80s compilation CD came out and went to number one in the charts. Uh, Two months later, a second 80s CD went top five in the charts. Suddenly, everyone was interested in the 80s. And then I got the phone calls to, 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 to gig, to perform. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll do this. This is going to last for six months or something and here i am 20 20 years 20 years later i've been performing around the world at 80s events i've been um having a good time really and then um 
because of the American TV shows last year using Too Shy and Never Ending Story, I thought, and I saw the, I saw the streams, the Spotify streams go up from 300,000 a month to 1.5 million. I thought maybe they'd, people would be interested in hearing something new. And that's when I did my last single, Still in Love. And here we are with the, the next single. Now, I watched, I never watched American Horror Story, but I did for the 80s one. And you guys are a big part of that. Did they call you and say, hey, Lamar, we're going to use you? Or were you just written in the script? I mean, did they say, okay, Kajagugu, and then you're all going to get, spoiler alert, you're all going to get killed. Did they, did they tell you that you're part of a storyline, or did they just do it, and then you reap the benefit? Because, once again, it's a huge show, and people are like, oh, wait, who's Kajagugu? And with the internet, people are like, like kids. I mean, it's funny. You talk to 20-year-old kids, they don't know half who the people are, and then they go, God, you go, oh, oh, yeah. I mean, how did that, how did, how did that feel when you actually, and then hearing you got killed on the show? <laughs> <laughs> I did not know a thing about it. Um, I don't think they need permission, and, and there would have been discussions between Netflix or the, the production company and the, mas the owners of the master, so it would be uh, Warners and Sony. So there would have been discussions because uh, they have to pay for the to use the song. In a way, it's it's hugely flattering, you know. To I think it's um it's it's a real kind of cred thing, isn't it, to get bumped off on American Horror Story? <laughs> so my nephew is watching this show, and he's he puts his phone on record, and he he just records his reaction when he realizes that his uncle is going to get bumped off on American Horror Story. And it was so funny. He was so shocked and he was swearing. And so I get this WhatsApp. He's going, Uncle C, they're going to have to kill you. I can't have to believe it. Oh my God, they killed you. <laughs> I thought it was very funny when, um, when they came out of the, uh, I hope this is not a spoiler for anyone, when they came out of the tour bus and, and the, the guy found all the bodies slain and too shy was playing and then he comes around the corner and we're there as ghosts you know with and we're playing and we're performing too shy <laughs> i just thought it was great i thought it was i i just thought it was wonderful to be written into such a big show now and, uh, as i say, and the guy, I, I thought the guy that was playing me i thought his british accent was a little bit too liverpool <laughs> Now, now I got to ask you. You know, you said you've been touring. And now, do you tour with the original band, or is it just you now when you tour? You mean Kajagugu? Yeah, I mean when you you go with the different fat eighty festivals, is it Lamal or is it Kajagugu, like the original band, with you? Oh no! Oh no! I'm no the band. The band of the band have disbanded, and they're all doing different things. So I just work with my own musicians, and I, I go out as Lamal. Thankfully. I don't need to go out as Kajigugu because I've had my own hit. And, and even in Kajigugu, everybody knew who the singer was, you know, a bit like Police, you know, who Sting is, for example. Um, it could be legally complicated if I had to use Kajigugu. Thankfully, I don't. So, yeah, I've, I've worked with some great musicians um, over the years. Now, do you? I know you guys did Bands Reunited a while back. Do you still talk to the guys in the bands? And what was that? What was the experience of bands reunited for you? Um, 
I don't really have a lot of communication with um, the band at the moment. I mean, we occasionally there's an email or something. That's about it. I, I read a, a kind of disparaging remark by Nick in an interview about a year ago about me, which kind of, it, it, it bothered me. You know, I was a bit angry about that. Um, but, you know, life's too short. Um, I... Uh, I forgot the question again. About bands. What was it like doing Bands Reunited? Bands Reunited was was tough because um, we hadn't spoke. We hadn't talked about anything for ooh, 20 years. So um, I had to kind of push all the emotional baggage into a cupboard, put a big padlock on the door. <laughs> uh, and then, And it was weird that such an emotional issue was all being filmed live as it happened. I mean, when I walked into that room, I hadn't I hadn't seen them for years and years and years. It was weird. Um, but TV, reality TV was new then, uh, late 90s, early noughties. And um, I guess we all wondered if there, it would be an opportunity, if it would maybe help us to heal things. You know, if good things are happening, I guess... You know, it, it, it helps to heal the wounds. Uh, there was a planned VH1 uh, Bands Were United tour, but it never, it didn't, you know, it didn't come to fruition. And uh, then the band, <laughs> I didn't speak for another 10 years until we got together uh, in 2008. Now, before we go, I want to talk, once you get back to your new single, did you... Because you had to change the words, and you, you switched up, and it's, as you said, recorded a while ago. Did you still have the same passion, like that same spark? I'm sure when you first wrote it, you were sparked, and now you're going back. Did you keep, did you keep that, was that, is that spark still there for that song? That spark has always been there for that song, for me. But... Um, when we when we started playing around with it, I knew there's a thing musicians have, we have called we call it demoitis, like tonsillitis, and it's where you're so attached to the original and you can't move on from it creatively. And I always had this doubt in my mind that we could try to improve it. I just thought there's a very good chance that this is not going to work out, but let's just let's just try. Um, I was always very excited about it. And as it came together, the, the plan was not to change the lyric at all. Um, so that was a big surprise. And it, it just felt right. When I, I was lying in bed one morning and I just thought, oh, wouldn't it be such a great gift to, to have more recognition for the song? And I started singing in my head, one gift for Christmas became one wish. And as I said, it's the word wish. It's such a nice word. I just thought, one wish for Christmas. Bloody hell, that's good. <laughs> um, and I've immediately WhatsApp the guys. And yeah, and we decided to try to record it. And even then, I wasn't sure it was going to work. You know, I thought, I've got to hear it back. Because sometimes whatever you hear in your head does not translate, you know, when it comes back at you. Recording's a weird thing. Now... What's the future for Lamal? Are you are you going to keep writing? 
and if coronavirus was over tomorrow, would you want to go on tour? Would you want to act? What's what's the future? Well, I decided to record an album, um, which will be my first album since 1992. Um, and I'm going to spend 2021 doing that, um, uh, you know, certainly for the next six months. I've got some great songs uh, and I'll probably write a couple of new ones. I'm quite excited about that. Um, I've been on social media three years and it's just growing and growing all the time. I think I'm up to like 14,000 now on Facebook. So I see, you know, it's, it's, it's very hard for a, what we call a heritage artist like myself to go to a record company and get them interested. You know, they, they just see me as like this 80s, you know, 80s pop star who's, who's too old. And so I can reach my audience um, directly. And I, I, I'm quite excited about, because um, <laughs> you know, the, my voice, I'm very lucky, the dulcet tones, are, they're still working. I, I still enjoy writing and recording. I'm passionate about it, really. Um, it's, it's still a thrill to do it. Now, what direction, what direction had your music gone in? What, like on your new album, what would you classify the stylings as? Oh, I don't know. Um, you know, you just, what you do is you record a bunch of songs, you try, you know, to me, to me, songwriting is also about music production. You know, you, you, if you, if you take everything away, you know, we get excited by records and it's about the whole, isn't it? You know, so there's a, there's a, as you Americans say, there's a process that we have to go through. <laughs> And you try things. It's digging. It's digging like digging for treasure. You know, it's hard work. I mean, it's easy. To, I find it quite, you know, it's like riding a bicycle. I've never forgotten. I can get an idea, lyrically, a phrase. I, I still write them down. I, I, I have a smartphone. I just, I have a, a note in my smartphone. I've got a list of song titles. But, um, you know, we've got a hundred years. A century or more of melody and lyrics so how do you find something new to say how do you i think we did with with one wish for christmas you know there isn't another christmas song with a backdrop story of london so I, that was exciting still in love in 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 march there, there was the, the protagonist in that song was in a very dark and painful place and there were certain lyrics yes yes there'd been other songs about that painful place but lyrically I just thought we managed to find something new that's what it has to be for me I, I can't just throw something together and the wonderful thing is that without being signed to a major knocking on the door saying we need the album by June you know I can just be creative be, enjoy the journey the, the creative journey and, and the passion I enjoy and, and, and just kind of see the excitement is to see to see where it ends up. That's awesome, Lamal. I want to thank you for coming on today. Uh, people go to the website, Lamal, L-I-M-A-H-L.com. You can see the, the, the song, the video's out. It's a great song, and it's, it's getting close to Christmas. You know, in, in New Jersey, 
all the Christmas stuff's already up. You go into these stores and it's everywhere. And I'm like, I told my wife, said, can you get some Thanksgiving decorations? I said, you're joking me, right? They're gone. So people follow them all. You're on Twitter also. Uh, and Facebook. So follow them all. Uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. My website's coopertalk.net. You can find over 820 episodes there. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. And on Instagram, I'm coopertalk1. And don't forget, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.